Support for KBUT is brought to you by Townie Books and Rumors Coffee and Tea House, serving Allegro organic coffee and fine loose leaf teas. Townie Books stocks new books and can special order anything. Drink coffee, read books, fight evil. Welcome to the West Elk Word, community affairs for the Gunnison Valley. I'm KBUT News Director Chad Rich, back this episode after a multi-year hiatus from the program. This week, our guest is W. Mitchell, former mayor of Crested Butte, who helped stop the mine on Red Lady in the 1970s. Mitchell was here this past summer for the reunion and stopped by the KBUT studios. Chad, it's nice to be back in Crested Butte. Oh, anybody who doesn't like Crested Butte, good, stay away. I figure there's only 365 really nice days a year in Crested Butte, so today certainly is one of them. Mitchell, can you start by telling us how you got involved with the fight against AMAX? You uh, you wanted to be the mayor. You became the mayor. Well, and then... we'll go through that a little more about me wanting, but anyway, I wound up being the mayor. Yeah, that's go, for sure. Go for it. Well, it was interesting because I came to Crested Butte in 1973, and I had been over in the... Uh, Pitkin County over in the Roaring Fork uh, in the summer of 70 and then the winter of 70, 71 and raced my motorcycle and skied and played and hung a little sheetrock and and then uh, and started my flying in, Crest- in uh, Aspen. My first flying lessons were up there and I was living in San Francisco and I was driving the cable cars. I was a gripman on the San Francisco cable cars which is the coolest job in the world and and then in the spring of 1971, I was in a motorcycle accident, and I was burned. Gas cap popped open, and gasoline burned me. And then the next summer, I got in my pickup truck with a, a camper on the back, and uh, my girlfriend and I came back up to Colorado to explore and see some friends in Aspen. And we decided to drive around the Rockies a little bit, and we went to Telluride and I didn't like Telluride that much. The street was too wide. That was my complaint. The ski area wasn't built yet. They were starting it, I think. But And I went to just lots of different places. And one of the places I went was Crested Butte. And I didn't know anybody here. didn't know anything about Crested Butte. And started to camp out at the uh, at a Gothic. And we, my girlfriend and I set up a tent and stuff. And the mosquitoes were horrific. And so we packed up the tent and all our stuff and came in town and found a place at the Forest Queen and bunk beds, and uh, Crested Butte was all right, but it was pretty funky, and I liked it over in the Aspen area, uh, which wasn't the full boom that it is today, but it was pretty, pretty nice place, and uh, some people were a little bit snotty. There were some people who were old-timers working in the restaurants, the bistro, which was part of the building that the Grubstake was in. The one-third of it, closest to Third Street, was the bistro and then the other two-thirds was the grub steak and people were a little, uh, I don't know what the word was but you see they were old timers they'd been there two weeks or three months or something and so they were real locals as opposed to some turkey coming in from out of town and, uh, and then the next summer I'd received an insurance settlement for my accident and I bought an airplane had finished my pilot's license and flew back to Aspen, again, to see one friend in particular, a woman named Susie Fisher, and was told she had moved over to Crested Butte. So I flew over here, tracked her down, met somebody last night at the HICA uh, event that was held uh, on the 31st of uh, July, and she told me where Susie Fisher was, found her, and now I was meeting people who lived here, and it was kind of nice, and started to look at houses, and three days later I bought a house on Maroon, right across from the fire station, the, what was then new, the new fire station. And um, it was just wonderful. Crested Butte felt good. One of the things that felt particularly good, because I'd been burned, my face, my hands. Uh, one of the nice things, and I tell audiences, when I, I do uh, inspirational, motivational speaking today, and I tell audiences about Crested Butte, and I love Crested Butte because the first person I met asked me what had happened to me, and in 15 minutes, everybody in town knew. So I didn't have to tell everybody again and again and again. That was a beautiful thing about a little town. 
where people were really connected. And um, I bought some properties, bought some lots, built, built a couple things. The log building behind the power plant, I bought the land, the power plant and the land behind it and built some buildings. And uh, just loved it. Crested Butte was just magic and beautiful. And one day I had an idea. The street lights were really ugly in Crested Butte. They were just a, a wooden pole with a mercury vapor street lamp, blue, neon looking, the same one you find at Kmart or at any parking lot you'd visit in the city. And they're fine in the city. They're very efficient and save money and all that stuff. But they weren't very compatible with a 100-year-old old coal mining town. And, and uh, I said, we could do a lot better. And I went over to the town hall and talked to the town manager, Bruce Baumgartner, and said, I'll throw some money in the pot if you work on getting some street lamps that fit better into this great, wonderful, Rocky Mountain, beautiful old mining town. And uh, a few weeks later, he called me, and he said he found some lights that he thought would be perfect. They were in a dump in Miles City, Montana. Miles City had gotten those street lights out of the town, took them to the dump, to put up exactly the kind of street lights I tried to get rid of in Crested Butte. <laughs> and some of the town fathers, I flew them up in my plane to Miles City, and they got a big truck and they loaded whatever. They were heavy as hell. So they loaded whatever they could load and brought back 20 of them or something like that. And then once they were reconfigured and whatever they were, with very efficient light, light bulbs in them, but looking more like they would have looked 50 years ago, and um, then they they got somebody to manufacture them, so they looked exactly the same. So you see all these lights down Elk Avenue and around town, and a handful of them came from Miles City, a dump in Miles City, Montana, and the rest this town manufactured, and I think they look great and good for me. So that's the first thing I did. But I didn't do anything else in Crested Butte, traveled away from Crested Butte a bunch, and was even considering buying a place in Bisbee, Arizona to spend the winters. So it was, it was cold up here in the winters. And just about that time, I had purchased the company store. I had owned other little properties, and two guys, John Benjamin and Murray Hal, owned the company store, and they wanted to sell whatever they could sell of it. So I bought half of it. So I owned half. They owned a quarter each. And uh, immediately became the owner of the tailings which was the bar and hardly a restaurant, but the bar down in the basement of the company store. And we had bands on the weekends and stuff, and it was fun and it was good. And, and one day Tommy Glass, who was the mayor, who wasn't going to run again, came down to talk to me and said, we want you to fill a vacancy on the town council. And I thought he was certifiable, and I said, no. You, you've come to the wrong place. I don't, I don't know what ever gave you an idea that I would do something like that. He said, well, we need you. You need to go. And I said, for how long? And he said, oh, about four months before the election in November. And I said, no, I'm very busy. I travel. I'm not even, how much do I have to do? He said, you have to come to a council meeting every two weeks. I said, I don't want to be stuck here for two weeks, longer than two weeks. I want to go to Bisbee and go to other places. And so he left, and about 10 minutes later, the judge came down. That was John Levin, was the county judge, lived here in town. Mitchell, we need you on the town council. I said, John, get out of the tailings. I won't even buy you a drink. Get out of here. I wouldn't do this. But you're, not, you're nuts. You're crazy. He left, and about 20 minutes later, the marshal came down. Rob McClung was the marshal back then. Magnificent guy. He had come over from Aspen the size of a refrigerator and uh, a sweet guy, but just super muscular and, and started to talk to me. I said, McHugh, get out, go away. Don't ever come back in here and talk to me about that again. So he left and then back comes Tommy Glass. It's like a tag team match. It was just <laughs> rude and nasty. And Tommy said to me, Mitchell, do you think people in this town have been good to you? I had, uh, about a year before, been in an airplane accident down in Gunnison and had broken my back, and I was paralyzed, so I was in a wheelchair now. 
And, and then while I was in the hospital, my house caught on fire, the one across the street from the fire station. That was good. And I think it was the first house in the history of Crested Butte that the fire department ever saved. Their motto at that point was, we never lost a lot. <laughs> the lot was always there when the building burned to the ground. But uh, um, I think mine might have been the first house they ever saved. And the story was amazing. The fire signal went off. I was, again, in the hospital in Denver. And everybody dumped out of the grub stake. And, of course, the volunteer firemen all came. And there was the fire chief standing in the entryway to my house blocking anybody from coming in because the house was on fire. And one of the bigger guys, all of these were Crested Butte hotshots, the, the, the firefighters that would go out in the summer and fight the, fight the fires, and they were all in great shape. And one of them, as the fire chief was saying, no, you can't come in, actually picked the fire chief up, lifted him up, and carried him across the lawn uh, to get him out of the way while all of these people ran into my house to save my furniture and my possessions. And I, I think I hardly lost a thing in the fire. I'm, it wasn't too good for the house, but they saved it. And some of the ladies of Crested Butte went in to grab my plants and take them home. And Tommy said, do you think the people of this town have ever done anything good for you, Mitchell? Do you think you owe them anything? Guilt trip, guilt trip, nasty, bad guy. And I said, well, maybe I won't get elected because the council would then vote to fill the vacancy on the town council. And there were two vacancies. And he said, you'll get elected. Show up, you'll get elected. Well, they put me on the town council, and that was fine. And it wasn't horrible, and there wasn't a lot for me to do. But I was walking to the town hall one evening for the council meeting with a fellow named <coughs> Ken Hall, Ken was on the council, and he was the mayor apparent because Tommy wasn't going to run again, and no one else was going to run for mayor. And so Ken Hall, who was a super nice guy, he was a cartoonist. His, his professional name was Senor Wachness, and he was a pretty good cartoonist. And he was going to be the next mayor. Nobody else said anything about it. And there had been an article in what was then the Crested Butte Pilot about some drilling that was going on up on the mountain, up on Red Lady. And there was a company doing some exploration up there for something. Maybe it was something. It was a weird name. I think it was Molly. Some it took about three months before I learned how to say molybdenum. And I said to Ken, what do you think is going to happen here? And what are we going to do about this? Because that's the company that has the mine over in Leadville on Mount Bartlett, what used to be Mount Bartlett. And what are we going to do? And he said, well, we can't do anything. They're the biggest mining company in the world, and we're Crested Butte. We're a little town. We don't even have jurisdiction over that land. We have jurisdiction over the city plot of Crested Butte, but not outside the town boundaries. And I uh, thought about it for a while, and we went to the council meeting, and I went home that night and went to bed and woke up at some point and said, I'm going to run for mayor because Crested Butte needs somebody who at least doesn't start from the beginning believing we can't do anything. At least we have to find out what we can do. And I even went the next day to one of the other council members and asked him to run for mayor because he had been in the council much longer and been in town longer than me. And I thought he'd be a good mayor. And he said, no, he's not ready to do that. So I started one of the most sophisticated and wonderful political campaign probably that's ever been run in the history of America. I went to the post office every day and just stayed in front of the post office in my wheelchair because everyone in Crested Butte comes to the post office. You don't have to go knock on doors. You don't have to call people. You just stand in front of the post office for a few hours a day. And within a week, you've met everybody in town and talked to them and just asked them what they were thinking and what was going on. The Amex thing was not something that was in anybody's mind yet. But if it was going to happen, having looked at what happened over in Leadville, this is not a pretty picture. And about, uh, I told the Hicka folks last night about 9.30 at night on Tuesday in November, I was going to bed. I was turning out my lights, going to bed, and there was a knock on my door. I went to the door and opened it, David Leinsdorf, 
uh, was there. I said, hi. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to bed. We have a big meeting tomorrow morning, you and I and some other people in the government. And he said, well, don't you even want to know whether you won? Because it was election night. And I said, well, I'm sure I did. I worked really hard. And he said, you did by 20 votes. And I was thinking, wow, that doesn't sound like a lot to me. And he said, well, look at it this way. You won by a bigger margin than Jimmy Carter over Gerald Ford. Bigger percentage. Uh, with whatever 600 votes cast or whatever the heck it was sure. uh, in town. And the next morning we had a meeting in Gunnison at the courthouse, the first meeting ever for us with AMAX. And they had Gordon Allett, retired U.S. senator, very powerful, very involved with public lands and minerals, and a congressman also no longer in Congress, but super powerful, Wayne Aspinall, and he had been chairman of the House Interior Committee. And again, that's huge. We're, we're in the West. That doesn't mean a lot in Connecticut, but it means a whole lot in states like Colorado and others where more than half the state is owned by the federal government. And they had those two on their side, and we had me <laughs> on our side. Didn't look like a very even fight to me. And... Um, and that was the beginning of the whole thing, and the reason I chose to run for mayor and felt very fortunate that uh, whoever elected me elected me and uh, had the time of my life for the next two terms. I was reelected two years later, and then two years later they elected someone else, and uh, I went off to do other things. I'll talk about the early days and what the mine company was trying to do and what your reaction and what the reaction of... Uh, the local townspeople, the local government, the county, um, basically how the whole mining scenario played out. Well, the, the, mine, the mining company, AMAX, American Metals Climax, which it's, was its original name, AMAX, um, they weren't bad guys. They weren't horrible people with dark mustaches and stuff. They were, they were, uh, they were just it was a company making money, making a lot of money, and their idea of a way to make money was to find big mineral deposits. And after they did their exploration of Mount Emmons, they uh, said they had the second largest deposit of molybdenum in the world. And that sounds impressive. That's neat. And they had come a long way from the early days of mining. When you look over in Leadville and see Mount Bartlett, what was Mount Bartlett, and for those who are listening who don't know exactly where all this is, if you drove over Monarch Pass or Cottonwood, and got to whatever the highway is at, at uh, um, why am I stuck on the name of the town? Buena Vista. Well, yeah, Buena Vista. And then you went north, uh, past Independence Pass, the turnoff for there. You'd come to Leadville, which is about 10,000 feet, which is a nice town, looks nice to me. And then you keep going another 10 miles or so, and you get to a, a big mining operation, uh, and the mountain that they mined was a mountain called Mount Bartlett. And then as you continue on, as you're going to, to Copper Mountain and to, to Denver and join the I-70, uh, you pass this place that used to be a mountain. And then you pass a valley which is filled with tailings. They called them, they started calling them tailings. I think they got a PR guy who told them that sounded nicer than slimes because what they were called by the miners, not by us, in the early days were slime pits. So you dig into the ground, you get the rock that contains minerals, gold, silver, lead, zinc, molybdenum. And in the case of Leadville, again, that was a very uh, big concentration of molybdenum. And you dig it up and you take it to a plant and you grind it up in a solution, put it in a solution which contains arsenic and stuff, nasty stuff. And eventually, the molybdenum kind of floats to the top, and you skim off the molybdenum, and then you take what's left, which is about 99% of what you pull out of the mountain. So you save your 1%, and then you take the 99% with all the liquids that they've used to get the 1% to float out of it, and you dump that in a valley somewhere 
because it's easy. And so you just fill up a valley. And so what you see um, north of Mount Bartlett is a valley that used to have a town called Climax in it. And you don't see Climax. You could see Climax, but you'd have to dig down around 600 feet under 600 feet of slimes uh, to find that old historic town, which was like Crested Butte back in its day. And uh, so now you have a valley filled with the leftovers, the slimes, and there's a reason that there are creeks in valleys because as rain happens over millennia, it cuts through the rock, cuts, cuts through whatever's in the valley, dirt, soil, trees, whatever it is, and it makes rivers and it makes streams and the streams flow down to places where people build towns and cities, streams like Coal Creek, streams like uh, whatever the river is that runs into Dillon Reservoir and runs into a little town called Denver, Colorado. And so, the and that's fine. It does what it does in this natural environment. But when you fill it up with zillions of acre feet of, of slimes, the stream still continues to cut through when it rains, and then it floats that slime, the slimes down to places where people live. And then they turn on their water tap, and they say, oh, this is interesting. Arsenic, that's nice. I think I'll have some of that. And endless kinds of, of, of minerals and waste that isn't good for you. So eventually, in the case of AMAX, they had to build a water treatment plant to uh, clean up what was flowing out of this slime pit. But they never could build a big enough water, or they never chose to build, big, build, build a big enough water plant. So they built one that did a pretty good job, except when you have spring runoff. So every spring, they exceed the legal standards of water clean water flowing down to Dillon Reservoir and down to Denver. They do a good job most of the year, and so it's not horrific what they send down there, but it's not good, not nice. And we, as we were watching this, kept thinking about, well, wait a second. What's going to happen to our town? We already have Coal Creek. Coal Creek is orange, and for those who came later to Crested Butte, orange is the color, orange is the color of Coal Creek. The water, no fish could live in it. No person, any person who drank it would not be a healthy person. And obviously it merges into the Slate River and other places before it ultimately reaches the Gunnison. But um, that was a little mine called the Keystone Mine and maybe other little mines. But what was going to happen when they built a $2 billion mine, which was the plan, the biggest industrial project in the history of Colorado, what was going to happen when they pull all the guts out of Mount Emmons and Mount Emmons, like Mount Bartlett, collapses and just is a pile of leftover rock? What's going to happen then to that orange coal creek? And one of the great things that Tommy Glass did, my predecessor as mayor, was he made the state make AMAX build a water treatment plant up at um, Keystone Mine. And that's the reason Coal Creek isn't orange anymore. But if nobody makes them do it, they're only going to do what they have to do. And Amex later built another mine over near Empire and on your way to down to Denver, further down to Denver. And they did a dramatically better job. And the water was much cleaner. The discharge where they put the slash tailings, the slimes, they did a much better job because they had to. Because laws forced them to... to Build it, build it better and put it in better places and do stuff like that. And I, I'm not anti-mining. There's molybdenum in my wheelchair. It makes it lighter and stronger. There's molybdenum in every bike that somebody owns here in Crested Butte. And it, they can ride it up in the mountains better and easier and stuff. There's molybdenum in everybody's cars. There's molybdenum every jet airplane you fly in. So molybdenum is an important mineral. It's just that Amex doesn't go to bed every night worrying about the clean water and the clean air and the magnificent mountains and valleys of Crested Butte. They're worried about the bottom line in Greenwich, Connecticut. Mitchell, were there people in town in favor of bringing mining back? Oh, I'm, absolutely. I'm sure 
people in the whole Gunnison country. Because if you started building a $2 billion mine, you're going to have a lot of need for housing. You're going to have a lot of need for bars. You're going to have a lot of need for schools. You're going to have a lot of need for churches, maybe. You're going to have a lot of need. You're also going to have a lot of need for alcohol rehabilitation clinics and rape crisis centers and, and homeless centers and a lot of need for more schooling because the, the turnover in population in a mining town, particularly in the real boom beginning of it, because the people that build the mine are not going to live here for 20 years. Their job is to build the mine, and then they're gone off to build another mine somewhere. They're not bad people. They're not terrible people. They're not evil people. They're workers, but they certainly have no attachment to the community. They have no, this is not where they're going to live for the next 20 years. Their kids have been in the classroom for three months, and now they're gone off to the next mine. And so there's no continuity. There's no, there's no sense of, of, of a real um, connectedness to the community. They're not evil, horrible people. We are have, and sitting here in your studio, I see pipes and conduit for wires, and there's probably enough copper in there to do who knows what. We use all this stuff, and that's true. But if we just take anywhere we find it, and say, well, it's worth a pound. A pound of aluminum is worth 22 bucks. And uh, Crested Butte, well, I don't know. There's lots of Crested Buttes. We don't need too many Crested Buttes. Bunch of hippies. And in fact, the reality was, this was a mining town, a coal mining town. And in 1952, it went bust, the final bust. For every mine that's ever been built, as far as I know, there's a bust, there's an end. And a lot of people were forced to leave and go down to Canyon City and down to Pueblo and and leave their homes and leave the place that they had an attachment to. And were it not for people coming up from Oklahoma and Texas buying the houses for $300 a piece and and coming up to hunt and to play in the summer and stuff, and then a couple guys from Kansas to come in and start to build a ski area, uh, this place would have been a ghost town. Wouldn't Their place would have been dead. And so there were some old-timers who weren't going to go working in a mine. They were too old. But there were people here who didn't like the fact that others disparaged their past, their traditions. And that certainly wasn't my goal or I think anybody's goal because I had great respect for the old-timers, the folks that stuck it out here when others were forced to leave because the mine busted. And these great people had a much better lifestyle, I think, because of things like the ski area being built and, and folks coming in the summer and people buying the second homes, which otherwise would have been abandoned, and having jobs, some of them, taking care of the homes because the folks just came in the summer usually or hunting season. So they had a job taking care of some of these old houses. My house was taken care of by the Sportsage family. And the Sportsage family were the children and grandchildren of Tony Mihalich, who had the Conoco and the hardware store, which is now the wonderful museum. I'd like to find the town in the West that has a museum as great as that museum. And in the prime piece of, I don't think there's a piece of, a square inch of real estate more valuable than that hardware store would be. And we didn't turn it into a t-shirt shop and we didn't turn it into an ice cream store and we didn't turn it in, we turned it into a place honoring those people, those old timers who stuck it out here and were great people. So, uh, And were they upset and offended and stuff? Well, some people didn't like the idea, but when you look at Crested Butte today and see what a magnificent place this is, it even has a public radio station. I don't know whether you, whether you knew that, Chad. It has a public radio station. And uh, not many towns in America this size have a public radio station. Well, we're super fortunate. And a lot of times in the small towns, uh, you feel like you're fighting big battles, like you mentioned, a small town against the mine. Was there ever a time you just thought that this is it, we have too far to go uphill, it, the, the beast is too big, the giant is too large. We can't win this one. I mean, I, was there ever a time when you just thought that it would just be better just to give up? I, I think it, it keep getting better, but it's certainly on the first day that I was the mayor-elect of Crested Butte. I, I certainly didn't wake up that morning and say, boy, we got them now. We got them on the run now. Because they were the biggest mining company in the world, and no one had ever said no to them. And, and they didn't act like that. They didn't run in and say, get out of our way and stuff. And they... They did understand that there was things they were going to have to do and make some accommodations and stuff, but I'm sure they never dreamt that they would get the reaction 
from a whole bunch of people. And, and I, I tell people when I give my speeches around the world, I tell people about the headline that ran when I was finished being mayor and AMAX had sort of put it on hold or couldn't do it anymore or whatever. They never said, oh, we quit, we're, we're done. But had we said on the first day, well, you know, we can't stop you, so we're going to work with you. And you have to help us build a nicer park or build a nicer road or or be a little more sensitive in where you're going to put the slimes or stuff like that, uh, and, and said, go ahead, they would have spent $125 million by the time they shut the thing down. We would have had a partly built mine, and Gunnison County would have had the biggest bust they had ever heard about ever because all these people that would have had to come to stay here to start the work, and mostly down in Gunnison, but all the work, all the extra exploration and, and digging in the mountain and all the stuff they would have to do, a lot would have been done and Crested Butte would not ever be the same again. Do you see any congruencies with a, a booming tourism economy and what would be a booming mining economy? Do you see you know a tourism economy like we have now? We're doing really well right now. Is, is, is there a warning to heed? The, the best thing that Crested Butte could ever be um would be not one person would live here. Not one person. There's, I don't know whether who, who said this, whether it was a... I'm not say his name. I know his name. Um, anyway, somebody said there should be three or four levels of wilderness. And there should be a wilderness that all of us can go and see. And obviously we can't take machines in and stuff, but we can go in and see it. And then there's a wilderness that's much more restricted and much tougher to get in. But... You can get in. And then there should be a level of wilderness that virtually is inaccessible. Uh, it, you could do some exploration, do some, do some research, do some study. And then there should be a, a level of wilderness nobody goes in. Leave it alone. Keep your footprints out of there. And Crested Butte should be up somewhere around those two levels if I had some fantasy and pushed a button. But, of course, I want to get in. See, I'm, I'm like everybody else here in Crested Butte. We all wanted to come here, and then we all wanted to save it. And good. So walk gently. Walk carefully in this place. Because, but, but if you give me a level of activity and work and jobs and stuff, skiing doesn't hurt too badly on the land. We have to be very careful about our bikes, riding our bike into, into land and not just wear that out. Uh, we need to be sensitive, very sensitive and careful. And I was so fascinated yesterday listening to people from HICA talking about some of the different things they're working on, which isn't mining, which is water quality in the streams and, and a whole bunch of other levels of, of protecting this magnificent place. Because this place does not belong to us. Maybe our house and our, our lot in town or up on the hill belongs to us. But this town, the hundreds of thousands of acres around here, belongs to people in Florida and Puerto Rico and Guam and California and Maine. And this land belongs to the public of the United States of America. And the fact that we come in and get to be the caretaker and get to be so special that we are going to be right here to protect it and look after it and make sure it's a magnificent place 10 years from now and 1,000 years from now is the greatest gift that we could ever be given. It's it's a magnificent responsibility that we have, and we get to live here and play. And everybody else gets to come here and visit, but we get to sit here and play and enjoy this magnificent place. And I just think uh, we're the luckiest in the world. Mining is not some horrible thing. It's the kind of large-scale mining that exists that AMAX wanted to build is incompatible with this magnificent land that we oversee that we look after but it doesn't belong to amax it doesn't belong to us it belongs to the people of the united states and i think the people of the planet to have special places like this where you can drive your car to the end of the paved road park it get out of it take five steps and you're in the most beautiful wilderness anywhere and to have that kind of opportunity seems to me to be magnificent and the more people that come here the more people that have to be more careful and, and be more sensitive and be more aware. 
But what happened at Crested Butte, one of the magnificent things that happened, and I got to be the guy in front with the leading the parade, and I did a lot of good stuff, and I, I'll take all the credit I can get. Give me some more if you want. We became a lighthouse in the Rockies. We became a symbol and a beacon, and people came to us and still are coming to us from different places in the country saying, we have this issue that's coming. We have Godzilla coming after us. What can we do? Can you give us some help? And we became this great source of information for, for American Indians, Native Americans, up in the Colville land, up in uh, Ohio, uh, Oregon, on the eastern part of Oregon. We had lots and lots of people that have come to us over the years. And HICA has become this magnificent resource that's given other people a chance to learn ways not to stop everything, but maybe to understand how to walk more gently on the planet so that after you're done visiting the place and you're gone, somebody else will come and have pretty much the same experience. So in the process of trying to protect this place, you're going to Washington, D.C., you're probably meeting with people in Denver, maybe they're even coming here. I can only imagine you met some people at the very top of the food chain, namely maybe some presidents, some secretaries. Can you talk about some of those experiences? I met some some incredible people, wonderful people. Jimmy Carter, of course, and and uh, the, some of the most powerful people in Congress. Mo Udall, whose son and nephew lived up here, and and were very involved with the. Uh, I know the words. I know the words. Uh, a place where you, people could go out into the wilderness and study. What the heck's that called? Why am I losing that for a second? I'll say it in a second. But uh, where y- younger people could come up to a wilderness place here, all kinds of America. I think it came from England, and I think Roy Smith, who lived up here, was a big piece of that early on. And, uh, and of course, you, uh, Mo Udall was the chairman of the House Interior Committee and, and super powerful guy, super smart guy. Having a son and a nephew here wasn't a bad thing. Uh, so I met all kinds of people with big names and big powerful things, Bob Redford, John Denver, a lot of people. I never met anybody better than... Oh, Dick Wingerson or uh, Susan Cottingham. or These aren't names that anybody knows outside of Crested Butte. Or Chuck Malik or again, Hicka. Uh, Susan Cottingham, a big piece in fighting for the wilderness around here, including O.B. Joyful. Um, lots of people whose names are not big and famous but had more impact on what we did here than Jimmy Carter or Mo Udall. And so lots of, lots of strong, amazing people. I had, I had more fun than you're allowed to have. And I wound up back in D.C. a lot, and somebody somehow, I think Tommy Glass probably had something to do with that too, got me on a committee with the National Endowment for the Arts. That brought me to D.C. every other week. And so there I had a ticket to Denver, and I could pay my own way, but it gave me access that I normally wouldn't have. And then I got connected in the White House and happened to bump into Jimmy Carter accidentally one day. Like actually bumped but in. Literally, he was coming down a hallway, and I was going the other way, and boom, there he was, and he couldn't get away from me. And then, uh, as we visited for just a little while, uh, we mentioned that it was so nice that his daughter Amy would come here to ski because Carter was from Georgia, and a lot of people that came to Crested Butte were from either Georgia or Texas or Oklahoma. And so some folks that were friends of the Carters, obviously, brought his daughter to Crested Butte. And when I'd say that to his, her dad, to Jimmy Carter, I got all his attention at that point because now I was talking about something that really mattered to him. And again, Mo Udall and, and even some people from the other side of the aisle, uh, Republicans, a Republican congressman from Colorado, eastern Colorado, who became a great friend of mine and a big help and introduced me to a senator from Idaho who uh, wound up, again, being a big piece of Obi Joyful becoming wilderness because of me, because he and I knew each other. And he wasn't interested in the mining issue, but he was very interested in making sure Obi Joyful was protected because it's our secondary water supply. If AMAX was to somehow wipe out Coal Creek, then we would have to go over to over to uh, Obi Joyful to get the water for our town. And uh, so that was a great moment. And I had endless moments like that, which were just 
fun and interesting, and the media took off like crazy on this thing. Yeah, they loved this story, didn't they? This, this. Well, what happened was I was a, um, a newly elected mayor. Uh, Tommy Glass, the mayor, took me down to Denver. Uh, I met a reporter down there, wrote a story about me, and I met the governor that day, Dick Lamb, and he put an article in the paper, which I sent to my plastic surgeon in Denver, um, excuse me, not Denver, but San Francisco, and his daughter and I knew each other because I took her flying in my plane once, and I let her drive my 1939 Cadillac, and that she loved, that she loved. She tolerated me, but she loved the car, and uh, her name was Cynthia Gorney, and she was a writer for the Washington Post, and she had been the bureau chief down in South America, and and so she knew me, and she saw the little newspaper clip from Denver, from Rocky Mountain News, and she called me and said, do you have any plans going to go to Washington? And I said, oh, yes, oh, yes. I had no such thing as a plan to do anything. I didn't have anything figured out in those early days. But then I wound up going to Grand Junction because the vice president was speaking there, and every dog catcher and sewer commissioner in western Colorado went. And I went there and through a longer story, wound up, meeting uh, Walter Mondale, the vice president of the United States, who talked to me briefly, and he was very nice, and, but he had other things to do. And, and he got about three steps away from me, and I said to him, by the way, Mr. Vice President, Gus Clemmick said to say hi to you if I saw you. And he turned around as if my mother just, uh, if his mother had just called him and turned around, Gus Clemmick, how do you know Gus Clemmick? And I said, well, Gus actually works for the mining company that's going to tear down the mountain in our town in Crested Butte, only he's not being a bad guy. He's working to get clean up the tailings ponds up at uh, Keystone Mines, the old mine that the, is the base of this big mining company. I said, Gus Klamek. I said, yeah, he used to play poker with you, he told me. I said, yeah, and I never lost a hand. I never won a hand. And so that gave us this amazing connection, which meant something to him. And so I then asked him whether I could see him when I go back to Washington. And he said, sure, you and he told one of his staff members to make sure that I was covered. And in that meeting, also, um, the Secretary, Secretary of Interior was at that meeting in Grand Junction, Cecil Andrus, who was from Idaho. And we learned later, doing some studies, had stopped a molybdenum mine in Idaho when he was governor. And so when we went back to Washington to see the vice president, to see... Um, Cecil Andrus, the Secretary of Interior, uh, and then the story in the Washington Post appeared because Cynthia Gorney had come up here to write the story, and it was the entire page two of the Rocky Mountain Post, Rocky Mountain News, excuse me. Let me try, may I try that one more time? The Washington Post. <laughs> I knew I'd get it out if I said that right. The Washington Post. That's kind of a nice newspaper to have your story in when you're in Washington, D.C., and every member of Congress and every, anybody who's in any office reads that every day. And so when we were leaving, because we had another meeting with AMAX up in New York City and in Connecticut at their headquarters, and so as we were leaving D.C. to get on the train, we stopped by our senator's office, uh, Senator Haskell, and outside his door, because the newspaper article had appeared that morning, there were 30 reporters and television people waiting to meet this person who was fighting Godzilla to save Shangri-La. And that story just took off like crazy. And for the next four years, there was a there was a big story in some news outlet at least once a month, in New York Times or Newsweek or Time Magazine. or It went all over the world. And uh, Amex had more of an equal adversary. And... I get all kinds of credit, and I'm a wonderful person, and I tell in my speeches that I'm, there was a headline that ran when I was done, and Amex was done for a while anyway, and the headline ran, W. Mitchell, the mayor who, ran, who saved a mountain. Now, that's cool. That's a good story, oh, yeah. and that's a great headline, and I tell him, I can show you the headline. I said, it's not true, but I have the story. I said, you see, it was a community that saved a mountain. It was a group of people who believed that our air and our water and our land 
in our wildlands is worth more than a pound of molybdenum. And you can get molybdenum in a lot of places, but there aren't very many crested buttes on the planet. And I got to lead the charge, and were it not for hundreds of other people, never would have happened. I'm going to give one last line, if I may, sir, and you have the big red switch. So you, There's a song, and one of the most wonderful things, John Denver became a friend. I was on the Windstar Foundation board across the, the hills here over in Old Snowmass. And one day John called me, and he flew over, and I introduced him to a song as I picked him up at our little airport, and uh, I said, I want to play this for you as I drove him into town. And the song starts with, I came here from the city, a thousand miles away, I came for just a little while. You know, I never meant to stay. I meant to take my pleasures, have a good time, and be gone. But I fell in love with the lady. Now I sing the mountain song. And as we were driving back out to the airport, he said, could you play that cassette again for me? I said, yeah, sure. So I played him again, Tracy Wickland's mountain song. And John put it on his next album. And hundreds of thousands, who knows how many more people, got to hear this song from another lighthouse in the Rockies, helping other people realize that we do have some control. We, we don't have to sell, as she says, some more our, our beauty that can't be bought or sold. We think of only money while destroying wealth untold is something that happens when people don't pay attention, that don't stand up, that don't say, I want to be part of this, and I don't have to be the biggest star or the guy that makes the most noise. But it's a whole bunch of great people that made this be what it is today. And Marshall McLuhan, the wonderful Canadian professor from the University of Toronto, said a long time ago, there are no passengers on spaceship Earth. We are all crew. And when I walk around Crested Butte today, when I walked around Crested Butte in 1973, I saw an awful lot of crew members and not too many passengers. Mitchell, those fights the like you fought against the mine still go on today, whether it's expanding coal mining, whether it's removing bears and mountain lions for certain reasons, whether it's maybe even one day firing up a molybdenum mine somewhere else. What advice do you have or what words would you give to people who are passionate about wanting to keep the environment clean, healthy, clean water, clean air, people that care about the places they live in? What would you tell them? Go read a couple of Ed Abbey's books. And Ed came up to see me one time up here in Crested Butte. I didn't know him. And, and uh, we had another friend, David Brower, one of the greatest lovers of this planet and protective of our space. David Brower, the, I call him the grandfather of the environment. He's the modern-day John Muir. He's gone now, but he refounded the Sierra Club and made it much more meaningful and then created Friends of the, Friends of the Earth. Pay attention to David. Read him. Spend some time with him. He's a wonderful person to spend time to. In fact, the first book you ought to read is called The... Uh, I'm fishing for that name. The uh, Encounters with the Archdruid. Encounters with the Archdruid. Get that book. Read that book. Give that to any child over 12 years old and have them read that book and see what one man can do. John Denver wrote a wonderful song for Buckminster Fuller, another magnificent human being and and, and great protector of, of our planet. And his song was entitled What One Man Can Do. It doesn't take some big, strong, powerful person or it doesn't take a big, loud mouth like me. It can just take people who care, who give, and don't want to be passengers and want to be part of the crew. And it was a crew in Crested Butte, Hicka, a crew in lots of places in this country and in this world today who are saying we're getting more and more crowded. We have a fellow... Paul Ehrlich, who's out at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory, wrote a famous book called The Population Bomb years ago. And all of us have a chance to help, to decide what really matters and what really matters for who comes next. Because more people want to come to Crested Butte and live here. And okay, 
there's room for more people, there's room for me, but everyone has to be more responsible as they come. And we were fortunate through the same X battle. We got a lot of wins out of this thing. We got a lot of wins. We had a study project out of Harvard University, and a whole slew of people came here, didn't cost us anything, to study this area and to think about how we can use it more gently and more wisely and more carefully. And carrying capacity is a very important element, and you can get more people in a space if you use it more carefully. We can't make this New York City, and I hope that's never our goal, because this is a precious resource, more valuable than the molybdenum, and more valuable than taking meadows and hillsides and stuff unendingly and turning them into a, a theme park or a Disneyland or something. That's not what this place is for. It's for people who care enough that they're willing not to have to have the biggest monstrosity on the planet or not to, not to have... I, I talked to the, the mayor up in Mount Crested Butte when I was first elected, and I said something to him one day about how much can this place handle, how much can we carry, and I said, at least we can agree on one thing. None of us want a Safeway in Crested Butte. And he said, I want a Safeway in Crested Butte. And I said... You go 28 miles south of here, and there's wonderful grocery stores, beautiful grocery stores, perfect grocery stores, as big as, as wonderful as any grocery store you can find anywhere. And they're in exactly the right place, a town that's ready for grocery stores. They fit there. They work there. Crested Butte, it has Clark's Market. Good for it. It doesn't have Tony and, and Eleanor Stefanik anymore. For those of you who are newer here, you don't know that, but it's a restaurant now on Elk Avenue. We had, we had a place to get a steak or something if you needed it, but... The more we care, the more we look, the more we say how heavy a footprint are we willing not to put on the ground in Crested Butte so that other more can come here and see it and enjoy it and leave loving this place and singing the mountain song. You know what's interesting, Mitchell, is I've seen you here a handful of times um, you're not here 365 days a year, but you're just as connected now as probably you ever were. It's a connection that just never never leaves, does it? I'm here and I'm on, a, on an island called Molokai in Hawaii, which is really the smallest, the second smallest of the islands where people come and stay. And it's, it was mostly a pineapple plantation and there's a leper colony on the north face of it. And there's probably seven or 8,000 people that live on the island. So it's not much different than this valley, I would imagine, in population or something like that. And uh, and there are precious places there that should not be touched by anybody. And there are precious places that if you come and spend, talk about recreation, that's called recreation, folks. That's called restarting your, recharging your battery, restarting your motor to come here and just love it and just love it, and then leave it and let it be the way it was when you came here. That's it. This has been great. Chad, you're a treat. Mitchell, you're fantastic. I appreciate you joining us here at KBUT. That's the West Elk Word here on KBUT Community Radio. I'm News Director Chad Rich. It's been my privilege speaking with former Crested Butte Mayor W. Mitchell today.